0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda.
1: And this is Prashant Parmaswaran, your co-host from Washington, D.C.
0: Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. And uh, we will be taking our listeners, I guess, to a remote part of Asia's geography that we haven't really gotten to before on this podcast. But um, this issue has been on the radar um, for certainly The last five years in a big way, but uh, is really the result of um, several decades of policy. And specifically what I'm talking about is the current crisis that is very much in the news um, involving the Rohingya in Myanmar's Rakhine state, which um, borders Bangladesh. Um, so, before we get into a discussion of the current crisis, uh, which is a humanitarian crisis um, on, on really a new level than what we'd seen um, recently, even even going back to the violence that broke out uh, five years ago, um, it really appears that the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar has reached a new level, judging by the violence we've seen in late August and running into early September. Um, but first, I'll just offer a little bit of background, since uh, not all of our listeners might be familiar with the Rohingya. Uh, certainly, it's a um, it's a crisis that hasn't received the kind of headline attention that a lot of other humanitarian issues are. Um, So... I guess we can start with maybe the word Rohingya, uh, what it means. Um, It is thought to come from the word Rohan, which means which is thought by some people to have come from Arakan, which was the uh, former kingdom um, in the area currently known as Rakhine State in Myanmar. So Myanmar is a large Southeast Asian country with 53 million people. Rakhine State has 3.1 million people. One million of the people in Rakhine State, or roughly a third, are are, um, part of the Rohingya ethnic group. And what these people are um, is that they... um, have essentially been in the area for a while, but today they are essentially a people without a home. They are not treated as Myanmar citizens in the fullest sense. Um, They are treated as second-class citizens in Myanmar, and they are uh, referred to formally by the Myanmar government as Bengalis. And there's a reason for that. Uh, It is because they are um, ethnically, religiously um, different from the predominantly Buddhist population in the remainder of Rakhine State and indeed Myanmar at large. Um, And they're thought to have closer ties to um, the the Bengali people of South Asia, uh, who today obviously reside in India and Bangladesh, uh, which also borders this part of Myanmar, um, the Bangladesh government, meanwhile, um, treats, the Min- uh, treats the Rohingya as a um, as a population that isn't Bengali. Uh, they they treat them as refugees and migrants. And the treatment of this minority group um, by Bangladesh has also been um, deplorable to an extent. And the Bangladeshi government simply isn't able to deal with the current influx of um, hundreds of, thou- uh, not hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of Rohingya refugees uh, into its territory. Um, but yeah, so the, the crisis that we're observing right now really, um, I guess, comes down to um, A a new surge of violence um, involving Rohingya insurgents, who the Myanmar government describes as terrorists, who have conducted attacks on um, Myanmar's um, Burmese state authorities, uh, including including the police, which has led to a major military crackdown, including um, which has included reports of several atrocities, burning down of uh, Rohingya villages in the region, prompting a massive refugee outflow that the United Nations now estimates could lead to an outflow of as many as three hundred thousand Rohingya, which is, um, as I said earlier, a million, so roughly a third of The total population. Uh, so this is really a crisis on the level, um, on a new level that we really haven't seen um, in Raqqa and state before. Um, so Prashant, I mean that's a that's a very uh, broad strokes, um, you know, background to this crisis. Um, but, you know, I'm wondering, could you tell us a bit about, you know, the how how the uh, Burmese government, um, which transitioned to democracy in 2015, as we discussed on this podcast before, is currently led by a uh, Nobel laureate uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is state counselor, the de facto leader of the country. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how um, how the Burmese government has historically um, you know, regarded the Rohingya in in Rakhine state and and, you know, how how it's how it's currently managing this crisis?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the government response is, is kind of an interesting one because there was a, a period uh, immediately following uh, the country's independence where uh, the country was a democracy and then it followed uh, sort of decades of uh, military leadership. And then this historic election that was won by Aung San Suu Kyi and her opposition uh, National League for Democracy, NLD, Um, was marking a a return to uh, civilian rule in the country in in decades. Um, But throughout this process, I would say if you were to characterize the government response, it'd be a mix of neglect, um, abuse, and sometimes violence uh, towards the Rohingya. I mean, this is a population which they had their citizenship stripped uh, in 1974, um, and there have been various instances of violence where tens of thousands, at times hundreds of thousands, have been forced to... Leave the country due to widespread prosecution. So you had, you know, a round of violence in in the 1970s. You had another big one in the 1990s, and the as you correctly noted, I mean, the last round of notable uh, violence was back in 2012. Um, and the last time that this crisis kind of made the headlines was in 2015, right? When mm-hmm. we saw about like what 25,000 Rohingyas trying to flee across boats um, across the Andaman Sea, and that resulted in, in a huge cry for international attention. So I think the the issue with the Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD government is that the expectations have significantly increased in terms of what the Myanmar government is supposed to do. I think, you know, most people, even those um, you know human rights organizations and individuals who who care about uh, the Rohingya and and their fate, would acknowledge the fact that you know the the government has extremely limited uh, capabilities when they're dealing with with the situation. And there's other complexities and complications like the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi doesn't. Fully control Myanmar, right? I mean, the, the military in Myanmar still has uh, a dominant influence in terms of particular ministries, but also controlling security in the country. So her capabilities are extremely limited. That being said, I mean, it's kind of hard uh, for even the casual observer to feel sorry for the government, given the fact that we haven't even seen the basic response that we'd expect from the Aung San Suu Kyi government come up. We, we don't have basic access uh, in terms of humanitarian assistance the media hasn't been able to get access to actually cover the situation so we've got you know the estimates that you cited i mean these have been going up sometimes by the day, um, you know, this crisis erupted two weeks ago, we're not even sure how, how many of these individuals are actually fleeing. Mm-hmm. So given that those basic standards of government response haven't been met, I'm, I'm not surprised that we've seen, you know, sort of international condemnation across the board of the government.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this issue of Aung San Suu Kyi and the civilian government is interesting because a common strain of commentary on the Rohingya crisis really has, you know, I mean, you see some commentators who, you know, maybe knew who Aung San Suu Kyi was, knew the situation mm-hmm. in Myanmar, observed the transition to democracy. 2015 and said, "Oh, great! This country transitioned to democracy. Things are going to be a lot better overall." And uh, that also applies to this uh, Rohingya crisis, which, as you noted, in 2015 did attract quite a bit of news um, based on the migration issue, which uh, became a major issue in ASEAN, obviously. Um, But I mean, you know, as you noted, I mean, even though the government doesn't have uh, total control over the activities of the Burmese military, um, what we've seen really isn't, um, you know, there is clear evidence of complicity, right? In in what is going on in Rakhine State. I mean, the government has, um, in a sense, acted as a cheerleader for the military in many ways. They have described um, international aid organizations working in the area as having assisted the insurgents, which has really um, put aid workers at risk in the area. Um, they have alleged that Rohingya are burning down their own villages. Um, and, you know, granted, reports here are mixed. Um, maybe we can talk a bit about this group known as the Arkhan Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA. Uh, which is the insurgent group now at the at the heart of this uh, that the Burmese government describes as terrorists? Um, and look, I mean, you know, Burma is a country with problems with you know several militant groups, um, but really I think the government has taken a very different approach to to specifically the Rohingya insurgents who. Um, who they've described as terrorists which they have not done with uh, the wide range of other militant groups who they've entered a peace process with in many other cases um so there is this kind of sense that you know the, the civilian government in Myanmar even though it doesn't exercise full control over the military um is in a big way complicit and there's a lot more that they could have done um to really you know, this, um, uh, stave this up. I mean, even even though I mean, you know, there is the question of the legal status of the Rohingya, which remains, um, I mean, deplorable. Um, I mean, everything from the uh, this minority being required to seek government permission for marriages um, to really, I mean, lacking any of the trappings of of citizenship um, in the country. So really, I mean, it's been um, it's been not only disappointing, but I mean, really, I don't think it's too far to it's going too far to suggest that there is a degree of complicity um, with this government. What do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the issue of complicity uh, definitely has come up in this context, and it's it it actually is it's very difficult definitively to say the extent to which the government is complicit because, you know, you not only have the military um, and uh, these sort this group that calls itself the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army or, or ARSA, um, which really, um, you know, we don't really have a lot of uh, information about it, and there's also. Um, vigilantes and and other groups that sometimes camouflage themselves when they go out and carry out attacks. So it and given the fact that the Suchi government hasn't allowed uh, proper media coverage and hasn't allowed full access to humanitarian organizations, it's very difficult uh, to determine the exact level of complicity. But I think you you know you're right in suggesting that um, you know the fact that we have the military going in and carrying out these. I mean, essentially mass killings of uh, targeted uh, at Muslim Rohingya civilians, right? You know, you, there's documented evidence of burning, rape, uh, torture, um, and you know, as as you pointed out, I mean, you have hundreds of thousands, which is you know a third or or a quarter, depending on the estimate, of the entire Rohingya population in Rakhine State fleeing to Bangladesh, right? They're trekking across the jungles for days just to get out of the situation, so. And, and you know, the response you get out from the government, the dominant response is kind of a mix of denial and then also, you know, calling uh, this group uh, terrorists. Right. But essentially, the, the situation is, is pretty clear, right? Like over the decades, we've had a group that's been subjected to neglect, abuse and violence. And, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, close observers of Southeast Asia have been, wor- have been warning the government that if you don't address this issue, This is eventually going to fuel what is going to become an insurgency. And we, you know, the past year or two, we've seen sporadic attacks. Um, You know, last year, the group uh, that calls itself ARSA or elements of it carried out an attack on police posts that was quite similar. Right in October. Right. Uh, And then we saw an outbreak of violence uh, in response, similar. albeit at, at, a, at a smaller scale. Um, so this is something that has been very clearly for a long time in the making. And so um, I, I think it's it's clear that the government's lack of response in dealing with the situation has fueled it. What I would say about the, the current crisis is that, unfortunately, irrespective of what, what you think about the degree of complicity, um, it's unfortunate that the government has basically played into the hands of uh this this terrorist group or whatever you want to call them insurgent group terrorist group because essentially what 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 happened was they conducted an attack on these police posts the attack itself was a dismal failure but the heavy-handed government response um which targeted civilians has fueled support for this group and uh, attention on this group as well which is exactly you know sort of terrorism or insurgency 101 right like you try to engineer an attack against a government you pro- provoke a reprisal that's overwhelming in response and then you get more support and you fuel your ranks. So by doing this, the the, the government is is really undermining uh, itself in the
0: process. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about um, ARSA. I mean, it's this, it's this fascinating group that, uh, you know, a lot of analysts um, in the region, I mean, I guess Southeast Asia, South Asia, um, I think have really kind of perked up since, you know, there is this new now insurgent group in, in Rakhine State that defines itself um, as a self-defense organization um, intending to defend the Rohingya who have been, you know, repeatedly persecuted for decades um, against against the Burmese state. Um, but, you know, there's also been these uh, concerning reports um the International Crisis Group, at least, uh, you know, which has been one of the um, groups that I've really been relying on to kind of keep track of uh, what is happening simply um, in Rakhine State, um, pointed out um, as early as last year after the October attacks um, that ARSA um, had been receiving support from individuals who were located outside of the region in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, which adds a really interesting element to this whole crisis. Um, You know, it really comes back to this idea of um, the the insurgency in um, in in Rakhine state with the Rohingya, who are a uh, persecuted Muslim minority, starting to gain support uh, across uh, across the Muslim world more broadly. I mean, in recent days, we've seen um, support out of Turkey. President Erdogan has been quite vocal um, on this issue in particular. The OIC has drawn attention to this. Um, Muslim leaders within ASEAN, um, including um, Malaysia's Najib Razak, have, have spoken out on this quite forcefully, forcefully as well. Um, so it is it is turning into a quite serious um, issue, at least um, within the Muslim world more um, at large. Um, and... Yep. You know, I mean, uh, the question of what ARSA is and how it evolves from here, I think, um, really is is poorly understood at this point, right? I mean, we don't know if this is a an insurgent group, perhaps comparable to uh, you know s- several militant groups that operate, for example, in Kashmir um, against the Indian state, um, who might or might not necessarily have backing from from the Pakistani government. Some of them do. Um, in in the case of ARSA, we've seen kind of thinly sourced reports that imply material support is coming for these groups from um, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia. Um, unknown about the extent again, um, but I think you know these are really serious questions that that merit consideration. I mean, it it really. Um, points to the possibility of this turning into a real nightmare for um, both the Burmese government um, and and obviously the Rohingya civilian population who are ultimately caught in the crossfire here. Um, and, you know, there's there's nowhere for them to go. I mean, uh, Rakhine State is on the water. It's on the Bay of Bengal. Either they have to sail out by sea, uh, trying to find a better place somewhere else, but no one is really interested in taking in the Rohingya, including India, including Bangladesh. Um, Southeast Asian countries have stepped up um, in a limited way. Um, but really, I mean, this is just... Um, you know it, it, it's a pressure cooker with really it's just uh you know it, it had been waiting to blow for a while and I guess so uh, we're witnessing mm-hmm. the first steps here um but you know what's your um what's your sense of the regional response here um i mean uh, you know i described it a bit i mean really it's been dismal uh for the rohingya i mean apart from um aid groups nonprofits and the united nations um they really have very few friends
1: yeah it's true i mean and i think it's what what you're seeing is this pattern where um you've had you know hundreds of thousands of rohingyas that that have been persecuted in the country fleeing to various countries whether it's neighboring or sometimes as far as um middle east and then you have um this group now arsa um which you know depending on you know whether whether you want to believe what's actually coming out in terms of their propaganda and 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 some of the websites um it, it's led by an, an individual you know the name is atula abu amar jununi he's born in pakistan Raised in Saudi Arabia, and and you know has allegedly come home to now lead uh, this so-called insurgency, right? And he has said publicly the group's objective is primarily national, right? to liberate the Rohingya from oppression from the Myanmar government. And he's gone out of his way, unsurprisingly, to say that the group has no foreign banking backing. But as you correctly pointed out, I mean, no shortage of analysts have point out pointed out that there are these foreign links. And if you look at other insurgencies in the region, you know, the Southern Thailand, whether you look at the Philippines, Indonesia, I mean, the the, the question is not really whether foreign links exist. There, there is no doubt that some kind of foreign links exist. The question is, does that alter the goals of uh, the insurgency in terms of what they're seeking, what kinds of targets that they're having? So far, it's primarily national in orientation. But, you know, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, who knows, right? I mean, this is a situation that, you know, three, four years ago, if you were to say that there was going to be an insurgent group that was waging um, battle in Myanmar and was getting international headlines. You, you know, you wouldn't have been believed, but this is the situation we're finding ourselves now. Um, and with respect to the international response, um, I think the summary is right, which is that the the Rohingya have very few friends. There is no shortage of international actors that are trying to make headlines based on what's happening. I mean, you have Malaysia and Indonesia um, contributing some assistance. Um, but they also, you know, primarily Malaysia's Prime Minister Najib Razak has been criticized, even in Malaysia and as well as elsewhere, of trying to capitalize on the Rohingya issue as a domestic political issue to win votes among the Malaysian population, but actually not matching the rhetoric with actual assistance and aid. Um, as you pointed out, I mean that's that's kind of the situation the Rohingya are in, where the there are countries that are unwilling to take them in in different numbers. Malaysia has done that somewhat. There are uh, Rohingya in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. But the question is, um, you know, how much of these individuals can you take in, right? Bangladesh, for example, is already a pretty poor country, already overstretched in terms of resources. So if you have hundreds of thousands of Rohingya pouring into Bangladesh, they need to be taken in by other countries. And other countries would only be willing to take in a limited number. So I think the scale uh, really is an issue here when you're talking about the positions of various international actors. I mean, you, you'll see no shortage of, you know, rhetorical condemnation and allegations of genocide and so on and so forth. But the proof of the pudding will be it, to what degree are these countries actually willing to do something in terms of taking people in? And, you know, it's worth pointing out here. I mean, the Rohingya, are, they're, they're a dramatic example of a stateless people. But you do see parallels with, you know, whether you're looking at the Palestinians, um, you have uh, muslim or muslim majority countries condemning the israelis but actually not willing to take in a large number of palestinians when it actually comes to the heart of the issue and i yeah. think you're seeing a similar issue with the rohingya
0: yeah i think that's a really um apt comparison um it's also just the question of geography for them um which i think is really um really an unfortunate part i mean in a lot of these um refugee crises uh, people do ultimately try to flee first by foot um and if not by yeah. sea um and you know thailand um one of Myanmar's neighbors, uh, granted, on the other side of the country from Rakhine State, has also been a, um, a fairly um, popular influx point. But uh, that, again, you know, leads to human smuggling in the region, leads to kind of deadly um, encounters at sea. Um, and the Thai government has actually been uh, cracking down on, you know, smuggling rings were transporting um, Rohingya, um, among among other other groups um, around this region as well. Um, yeah. uh, so do you, um, you know, I mean, ASEAN, we talk about ASEAN all the time in sort of these, um, you know, when it comes to these... Hot button regional issues um, all the time. I mean, is there? I mean, ASEAN has been, frankly, quite disappointing on this issue. Do you see any any improvement lying ahead on this, or is this simply an issue that ASEAN is not equipped to handle as an organization?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's you know, with respect to ASEAN, you know, that that's kind of always the issue when you talk about um, these hot button issues, whether it's the South China Sea or or the Rohingya situation. Um, ASEAN itself is, you know, uh, a you know, as we've talked about before, a group of very diverse states. So you do have um, countries, Muslim-majority states like Malaysia and, and Indonesia, that have more of an interest in dealing with this issue because it, to a certain extent, is a domestic political issue as well. But then you have um, other countries that take less of an interest, either because they're, they're lesser developed, so they're not in a position to give as much aid, or they, they don't really want to alienate uh, the Burmese government because this is a very sensitive issue for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just an issue for for ASEAN, but you you also mentioned you know India um, and you know, Prime Minister Narendra Modi was just uh, in Myanmar, and and there was you know following his visit and even during his visit there was there were all kinds of conversation about why he wasn't taking you know a stronger stance on on the Rohingya issue, but you know. It, we both watch India, Indian foreign policy pretty closely. And you know, I think it's fair to say this, this was nothing dramatic in terms of India's position in Myanmar, right? Yeah. I mean, India uh, you know, has, has sort of always been trying to balance um, its its interests and ideals. And it, it does have uh, a significant interest in making sure it has a close relationship with the Burmese government, irrespective of what they're doing with the Rohingya. I mean, whether you're dealing with the Northeast India, problem with militancy, or you're dealing with, um, you know, economic and strategic influence relative to China. So uh, it, the point that you, you illustrated earlier, which is, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the Rohingya have very few friends is apt, even when you're talking about its immediate neighbors, unfortunately.
0: Absolutely. Um, which I guess, you know, brings me to another question that I think is worth um, discussing. I mean, Myanmar's transition to democracy in 2015 was in a large part, um, you know, midwifed by the United States. And I picked along this one of the Obama administration's kind of hallmark foreign policy accomplishments, even though it's not really talked about um, that often. Um, but now, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before. Um, we have a Trump administration that's not particularly interested in kind of quote unquote, soft issues like human rights, um, ethnic cleansing in Rakhine State would be something that would probably be quite difficult to get this U.S. president to take an interest in. Um, but, you know, I mean, where, where does U.S. policy really stand at this point? I mean, there is kind of, you know, th- there is still a stock ticking going on of the health of Myanmar's democracy more broadly um, after a, a relative period of optimism um, in, in late 2015 and, and early 2016. Um, but where are things today? Yeah, I mean,
1: I I think that's very much um, the elephant in the room when you you come to uh, international engagements that Myanmar has because essentially you you did have this period with the United States and to a lesser extent the European Union and other Western countries tried to uh, sort of engineer this process where uh, there would be a free election, and Aung San Suu Kyi and her government would come to power. And that would essentially facilitate the the easing of sanctions that occurred before. And you'd have, uh, hopefully, a situation in Myanmar that was less dire than before. Unfortunately, um, what that's done is it's firstly raised the level of expectation in terms of what people are hoping to accomplish from the Myanmar government's perspective and Aung San Suu Kyi. But at the same time, uh, Western countries, including the United States, have lost a significant amount of leverage. because. They've lifted these sanctions already, and they did it under the assumption that uh, the Aung San Suu Kyi government would uh, eventually get to a position where they're dealing with these human rights and democracy issues um, much better than they were before. Unfortunately, that just simply hasn't been the case, not only with respect to the Rohingya, uh, whether you look at freedom of expression, the media… Um, even close supporters of the Aung San Suu Kyi government and, and Myanmar within the U.S. government will say privately that they're extremely mm. disappointed at what uh, the Aung San Suu Kyi government has done thus far. So that creates an, an issue for the for the for the U.S. government because I think there were people who were pretty bullish on U.S. Myanmar relations and were saying, "Oh, now that we have sanctions eased and we have Aung San Suu Kyi in, in power, maybe we can think about you know military engagement uh, with uh, the military in Myanmar and with the United States." and Myanmar can emerge as a security partner for Washington well, I think it's very hard to have those conversations now and yeah. you know u s Myanmar engagement when you have these uh, human rights and democracy conversations uh, that are you know very uncomfortable and, and to be honest i mean it it, it has been really really disheartening uh, the the level of regression that we've seen um, in the last two three years
0: yeah well I mean you know I guess um if if Prayuth and Duterte will soon be in the White House um you know maybe anything <laughs> yeah. possible at this point um yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I guess uh, to close out the podcast, I mean, you know, we are on the cusp of the UN General Assembly um, about to open and the general debate. And actually part of me wonders if we'll actually see... um, the leaders of several OIC states, Muslim states, um, really make this issue an important part of their speeches this year. And um, I wonder what that you know that kind of international response might have on on the Burmese government's decision-making. I mean, clearly to, to this point, any kind of international oppressor, be it from governments uh, or non-governmental organizations, has failed to really move the needle. Um, there is this commission that the Burmese government set up, led by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, that had actually just released some recommendations right before the latest bout of violence, including allowing the Rohingya to um, enjoy some of the benefits of citizenship, uh, you know, re- removing the restrictions on their movement, um, and simply decreasing the amount of persecution. Um, but I think this is just a really interesting time for this um, crisis to really um, end up in the headlines right before the General Assembly, um, especially with like Erdogan and Turkey making all this noise. It seems like um, we could see quite a bit of attention to it this year.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's definitely a space to watch. So you're, you're right to raise it. In fact, I mean, there have been a number of countries who have already said that they're going to raise it at the UN General Assembly, and then also at OIC fora as well. So that's definitely something that we ought to watch uh, internationally.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we should uh, definitely keep an eye on this and, um, and come back to it. Uh, You know, I mean, I I guess, you know, it also speaks uh, to the the degree to which this crisis is regarded on you know kind of the global radar of crises that it's taken us this long on this podcast to get to it um it, it's certainly acquiring um increased geopolitical importance in the asia pacific um especially in southeast asia but also um drawing south asian states in, as we know so um so yeah we'll keep an eye on this and uh we'll come back to it as it um as it grows and evolves. Um uh, well thanks for joining me today Prashant that's good All right. Well, uh, for our listeners, uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do so so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have been a subscriber, but you haven't left us a rating yet on iTunes or Google Play, please do so. We would really appreciate that. gets the word out about the show. And if there's a topic you'd like us to address on the podcast that you haven't heard yet and you'd like to hear us discuss, uh, please let me know. We'll be back soon with more. Thanks for listening.